Hi, welcome back to The Horrors. Hi, I'm Elise. I'm Shay. Another episode. We are here. It is good to be here. It feels like something new is coming. Yeah. Restrictions are lifting. Mm-hmm. People are getting shots in the arms. Mm-hmm. I know that's right. Didn't you? I did. I'm half vaccinated. Oh, damn. I was about to say, you got that J&J? <laughs> there weren't enough doses for my district and Maryland started vaccinating PA teachers, so... I'm still unprotected. Oh! I'm out here. Scandalous. It is. Well, you're so careful anyway. Plus, your lady is vaxxed, so you have that extra protection. She's actually only half vaxxed as well. Oh, that's right. But tomorrow, she will be fully vaxxed. She's turning up on, well, we're recording this the day before St. Patrick's Day. She will be turning up on her St. Patrick's Day by getting inoculated. Wow, how lucky. I know. But it's at least nice outside. It definitely feels like we've turned the leaf of 2020. Yes, the grass is starting to become a little bit more vibrant, shedding its brown hue, adopting a beautiful green. <laughs> <laughs> um, I saw some flowers poking up. There have been a couple mornings as well where I've heard birds when I go out to my car. Living things? Can you even believe that it? That exist in the outside? I feel... Like, there is some unhinged energy in the air. Everyone is going to be wild and out of control this summer. I read something about how I understand why they were called the Roaring Twenties because of the plague of 1918, where no one could fucking do anything, and that's why the 20s were so roaring. Yeah, paired with World War I, everyone was like, death is real, YOLO. Let's make out. Exactly. (laughs) Let's drink. It was crazy, and I feel that coming. It's, It's like an electric humming. (laughs) <laughs> that was such such a rhyme that's what it feels like you just oh, sounded like I a born song <laughs> i feel it coming it's an electric humming this podcast is turning into a folk song workshop instead of a horror podcast so shay you don't know about it yet the rejected crafts <laughs> of folklore the podcast <laughs> it's in honor of taylor swift's album of the year when she deserved it you know what i cannot believe i'm saying this but yes she did it was a really good album elise had a long-standing hatred of taylor swift until evermore her i didn't i guess it just felt right i just really lyrically clever she sounded really good i kept joking with you that she just kept featuring your favorite artists until (laughs) she made you like her (laughs) yes yeah she did she knows how to pick a feature she had bonnie bear and that one was the one that got me she featured him twice twice anyway so that's good taylor swift you know not like it matters what i say you had your fans from the start but i'm proud of you (laughs) first woman to get it three times in three different genres I didn't know that part. Yeah, I saw that part in three different genres, mm-hmm, which is speaks to her talent. Oh, wow. This conversation, never thought I'd have it. Here we are. <laughs> okay, get your face right now. So. Oh, I just realized I forgot to bring the selfie light. Y'all, I bought this selfie light that we're going to attach a phone to and videotape some of our episodes just for fun for instagram content and i forgot to bring it today i think because i was distracted by other things but oh no oh but get ready for some live action hopefully i say as i am wearing a college sweatshirt my face is beet red and i have like the tiniest of tiny man buns just rocking under my headphones i am not disappointed in this yeah i forgot about it too i'm also wearing a sweatshirt my hair is undone but whatever, you know, it's not this week. It, it's, for, it's for another day. Today is about dance. 
<laughs> Dance. Form. Light. Color. Rhythm. France. No, Germany. <laughs> Germany. <laughs> Academies. Spelled with Ks. Those tiny little shoes that make you go on tiny little points on the floor. Point shoes? Sure. <laughs> I don't know. With slippers? For a movie about ballet, there wasn't a ton of dancing. There was some. I think the guys brought it with the dancing in that movie. I agree. I didn't know there were going to be guys in that movie. So it was cool. Guyarinas? 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 Boyarinas? Dude Larinas? <laughs> Manlarinas. Man-larinas. <laughs> you, they could just be ballerinas. Testosterinas. <laughs> and in case you haven't caught on, this week we are talking about Suspiria, which is about ballerinas that are trapped in a witch's coven. Exactly. And this is the 1977 version, so the original version. Yes, we do not have Tilda Swinton or Chloe Grace Moretz. Even appearances in this one. I haven't heard great things about the remake, but I feel like Tilda has that vibe that makes her good. I mean, ever since she was like, what was she, like the Snow Queen? Yeah. In Chronicles of Narnia. Precisely that. Like, I would trust her to be the head countess or head mistress of any satanic cult ever. This is so funny because have you ever seen What We Do in the Shadows? No. Okay, so there's a series on Hulu called What We Do in the Shadows, and it's a vampire mockumentary that just follows a bunch of vampires living in Staten Island. And at one point, they meet with the Vampiric Council, and Tilda Swinton is literally, like, as Tilda Swinton, like, as herself, cameoing as the lead of the Vampire Council. <laughs> she just has such a severe yet ethereal look. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But anyway, so, yeah, no Tilda Swinton today, but I, I kind of do want to watch the... 2018 one yeah and chloe grace moretz is just kind of running all over the damn place in horror remakes she was carrie in the new carrie too oh i can picture her yes yeah i mean i I haven't haven't seen seen that one either yeah but she's just taking all these final girls and being like me nice i like that energy so who do we have in this movie so in this movie, we have a bunch of people. I only wrote down the names of some of our uh, women that we're paying attention to the most. So the final girl in this movie is Jessica Harper. She plays Susie Bannon. Then we have Stefania Cassini, and she plays Sarah. We have Alita Valley as Miss Tanner, Joan Bennett as Madame Blanc, and Barbara Magnolfi as Olga. And she is dubbed by Carolyn DeFonseca. And then Ava Axen as Pat Hingle. Yeah, I remember reading about this movie that in Italian filmmaking, they like you to speak in your native tongue so that you can emote the best way. And mm-hmm. and you're not getting like caught up on accents and stuff. And then they just like dub you over in post-production, which makes it look a little weird for the viewer, but at least they're acting. Yeah, it's different. But I feel like once you're in it and you get used to it, it's not really that noticeable. No, no, not really. It's not distracting by any means. It's just definitely something that is different than the way that we do things. But yeah, that's not inherently bad whatsoever. Well, there are some other stuff about this movie that I think we should talk about before we get into the plot. Let's hit it. Okay. Woo. Okay. I got all this information from Wikipedia, but I did read a couple of other sources that does kind of like fact check some of this stuff. So Suspiria, 1977 Italian supernatural horror film directed by Dario Argento. 
Dario. Dario Argento. Dario Argento, who co-wrote the screenplay with his lover, Daria Nicolodi. No. no, wouldn't that be crazy? Yeah, isn't that so cute? Dario and Daria? That's so sweet. It reminds me of these two Beanie Baby bears I used to have when I was little, and one was named Valentino and one was named Valentina. There's this lesbian couple I watch on YouTube called Rose and Rosie. I know all about them. Why? Because in college, didn't they get married when we were in college and like you and Linda watched the wedding? Yes, we watched their wedding. I love that kind of thing. It feels so, I don't know, just cutesy. Okay, so the story is partially based on Thomas de Quincey's 1845 essay titled Suspiria de Profundis. And that is Latin. And we're going to get into what that means. So it is a phrase meaning size from the depths. Dramatic. And it's a collection of essays in the form of prose poems. And again, by Thomas de Quincey, first published in 1845, an examination of the process of memory as influenced by hallucinogenic drug use. Suspiria has been described as one of the best known and most distinctive literary works of its era. Isn't that nuts? So it's literally about tripping, tripping, which I think is interesting when we get into some of the stylistic elements of the movie. Lots of colors. All over the damn place. Mm-hmm. Lots of broken plot lines. Lots of questions. How did we get here? Where are we? So Suspiria is the first of a trilogy of films by Argento. Did you know this? Not intimately, but I knew okay. that it was part of a trio. I didn't know that. So it's referred to as the Three Mothers. The trilogy centers around three witches or mothers of sorrow. Isn't this just like so deliciously dramatic mothers of sorrow just sounds like a catholic church oh yes it does wow you're correct but these mothers of sorrow unleash evil from three locations in the world (laughs) which still kind of sounds like (laughs) (laughs) okay so in suspiria we focus on helena marcos as mater suspiriorum which is latin for mother of sighs in freiburg germany in Inferno, which is the 1980 film by Argento that comes next, we have Mater Tenenbrarum, which is Mother of Darkness, and she's in New York City, baby. And the final installment in the trilogy, which wasn't made until 2007, is the Mother of Tears, or Mater Lachirmarum, Lacrimarum, in Rome. My Latin is a little bit rusty. <laughs> <laughs> You have mopped her down really good. Thank you so much. Argento based Suspiria in part on De Quincey's essays, as we know. He said that the idea for the film came to him after a trip through several European cities, including Lyon, Prague, and Turin. He became fascinated by the, quote, magic triangle, a point where the countries of France, Germany, and Switzerland meet. This is where Rudolf Steiner, a controversial social reformer and occultist, founded an anthroposophic community. Commenting on witchcraft and the occult, Argento said, there's very little to joke about. It's something that exists. And then that's kind of how the three mothers came to exist, in part based on his European trip and then also De Quincey's essay. So we move on. 
Daria Nicolodi helped Argento write the screenplay for the film, which combined the occult themes that interested Argento with fairy tales that were inspiring. So we do have a fairy tale element here, specifically drawing inspiration from Bluebeard, Pinocchio, and Alice's Adventures in Wonderland. So using Daria's core ideas, Argento helped co-write the screenplay, which he chose to set in a dance academy in Freiburg, near the German borders with Switzerland and France. The lead character of Susie Bannon was based on Snow White. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Initially, and this is something that I read in multiple places, initially the characters in the film were supposed to be very young girls, around 8 to 10, but then the producers were like, yeah, I'm not trying to like have a cast of all children. I'm a working adult. I'm hoping to work with adults. <laughs> Are they leprechauns? No. But the final sequence of the film was based on a dream Nickelodeon had while she was staying in Los Angeles. So there's very like dreamy, occult, spiritual elements all wrapped up in the creation of this film. Crazy, right? So nice. now we get into the style. We're almost through. So Suspiria is noteworthy for several stylistic flourishes that have become Argento trademarks, particularly the use of set piece structures that allow the camera to linger on pronounced visual elements, which, yeah, lots of interesting set pieces in this movie. Cinematographer Luciano Tavoli was hired by Argento to shoot the film based on color film tests he had completed, which Argento felt matched his vision, in part inspired by, again, Snow White. So the film was shot using anamorphic lenses. The production design and cinematography emphasized vivid primary colors, particularly red, creating a deliberately unrealistic nightmarish setting emphasized by the use of imbibition technicolor prints. Imbibation, imbibition, imbibition, imbibition. Imbibation. Yeah. I'll no, 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 no. It's M-B-I-B-I-T-I-O-N. Imbibitation. Imbibitation. No, imbibitation. No, imbibition. Oh my God, I feel like- Release your inhibitions. <laughs> okay, so commenting on the film's lush colors, Argento said, We were trying to reproduce the color of Walt Disney so white. It has been said from the beginning that Technicolor lacked subdued shades and was without nuances, like cut out cartoons. So the choice to use Technicolor lenses was intentional to make more of a cartoonish effect. And that's what he wanted. So the process used for The Wizard of Oz and Gone with the Wind is much more vivid in its color rendition than emulsion-based release prints. So it enhances the nightmare qualities that Argento intended to evoke. And this was really interesting. Another thing I read in a couple different places, it was one of the final feature films to be processed in Technicolor using the last remaining machine in Rome. I did read that. That is super interesting. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. So like it couldn't have been made the way, I don't know, it was just very timely. Like he wanted it a certain way and he got it that way, but just at the last minute. And it wouldn't look anything like it does if he had been like a year earlier or later. Exactly. So the final stylistic element I have listed here is the music that is used in the film. What is it? Gremlins? Goblin. Goblin. <laughs> Gremlins are what I call my cats. <laughs> A very good name for cats. So the music throughout the film, which they use that score to its fullest, y'all. They it, do. All the time. But it's so good. 
It's composed by prog rock band Goblin. And Argento also worked with this band in his 1975 film Deep Red, which is supposed to be really good. Have you ever seen that? I've heard of it, but I haven't seen it. Like Suspiria definitely takes the cake, but I also saw like on Rotten Tomatoes, Deep Red has a really good review. It seems like another, you know, if you like Suspiria, you probably would like Deep Red if, if it's in that Argento theme. And they also worked together on several other subsequent films, but the music was used in some other scary movies throughout other parts of the world. And it was just like a really monumental process for the creation of the music. There were different like things used for instruments and just an interesting recording process and it sounds really good and it actually reminds me a lot of the kind of sing-songy whispery jargon that happens in the witch oh yeah mm-hmm. yeah it's a lot of like the chorus reverberation like, that happens yeah and then oh my gosh and then they whisper things they're like da 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 but like with all of this like metal drumming happening in the background, there was the intention to imitate the sound of African drums. And oh my gosh, I don't, something about drums, especially like the sound of African drums just makes everything feel so urgent mm-hmm. or like energized. Mm-hmm. So it really does, I don't know, makes me nervous. <laughs> so let's get into what fucking happens. Yeah. What goes down? So we start, we have our girl. She's in the airport. She is... She is getting off the plane from New York to Germany. Mm-hmm. And as soon as she gets through the airport doors, she realizes it is raining super hard outside, just torrential downpour. She has a hard time hailing a taxi. The sequence is interesting because she steps out of the airport terminal and immediately, like, the walls are red. Something I read about this, too, you never notice the characters noticing color, ever. Like, the, they huh. don't talk about the color whatsoever, or they're not seeing the color. So it's really meant to put this backdrop, this set dressing, for lack of a better term, of, like, what's to come. And the second she walks through those sliding doors into the Germany airport, it's red in the airport. And then she steps out into the rain. And when she finally does hail a taxi, she asks the taxi driver, oh, has it been raining long? And he was just like, oh, it just started when you got here. So... Ooh. Like, her descending upon this school and coming into this situation is just kind of like stepping into a horror movie. It's mm-hmm. never... There's a lot of fucking precipitation that happens in horror movies, so we're already on a right oh, yeah. path there. Oh, yeah. So she is in her little taxi. They pull up front to this building, which has a red facade, a very vibrant colored facade. Even through the rain, you can see... And before Susie can get out of the car, she notices another young woman sort of standing in the doorway yelling at somebody on the other side of the door who we can't see. That person is, I guess, obstructed by the other closed door. It's like a double door entrance. This mysterious woman, you know, she runs away in terror and Susie kind of still gets out of the car. She's like, hmm, that's weird. She goes up, knocks on the door. She's told to go away. She's not expected. Susie says, but I am, though. They're like, but you're not, though. So she gets back in her taxi and she's forced to drive to town to see if she can find some place to stay there for the night. Meanwhile, we go back to the running girl. While Susie goes to find a place to stay, we see her running through the woods and it's very blue. Mm-hmm. And eventually she lands at an apartment complex that her friend is staying at. And she's scared. Her friend's like, what's up? Talk to me. And she's like, I really can't. And she's like, all right, well, you can just stay here. Just, you know, I'll leave you to freshen up. And she's looking out the window very suspiciously. And you get this really 
cool wide pan shot where you're seeing her standing in the window in between all these curtains. And if you look, it looks like they're dancers against Mm. the walls because the curtains are moving in such a way that almost looks like they're like ballerina dancers just kind of like waving in the night. And you hear some music building, a lot of a cacophonous choral music starts building up and building up and she sees a pair of eyes in the window and then is attacked by a very hairy arm. Yes, it breaks through one of the panes of glass and pushes her head, who we now know this woman's name is Pat, we've heard in the conversation with her friend, pushes Pat's face against the intact window glass from the opposite side and then ends up breaking her face through the window, which I thought was really fucking scary. Yeah, yeah. Like, even though the eyes were a little bit corny and the hand breaking through the glass was a little bit scary, something about, like, pushing her face through the glass? I don't know. It was just, it was awful. And you're not meant to think that the attacker is human because even the eyes look very cat-like. Yes, they're yellow. Yeah, and even the shape of them. And yeah, we have a hairy arm going on. And I found that interesting due to the Blair Witch episode that we did where part of that lore was that it was this hairy woman in the woods. So I'm like, oh, like, is that supposed to be like a hint about that time where like witches are like almost lichen-like? I'm not as familiar with witch lore, but there is a lot of connection between like the devil and animals. So I feel like if witches are supposed to be working or in compact with the devil or demonic purposes, then I can see maybe that there's that animal overlap as well. So Pat is screaming. She is stabbed multiple times. Yes. But somehow like she goes from having her face pushed to the glass to being on like the roof of the building, which is a weird cut, but she's being stabbed now. Yeah, we don't necessarily know if she's on the roof roof of the building or like another smaller roof, but so I guess they fly on the broomstick up to the fucking roof roof. I don't know. But at this point, her friend is screaming on doors, running, there's a murderer, there's a murderer, mm-hmm. uh, there's a killer on the loose. And she's try- trying to get her neighbors to come and help her. No one is. And she's trying to run downstairs and out of the building while Pat is being stabbed multiple times on the roof. You get a really gory shot of her exposed heart being stabbed. Very uncomfortable. And then the perpetrator fashions some rope that he has and Pat is sent flying through the multicolor skylight mm-hmm. of the apartment complex or the hotel or whatever and is hung by that cord mm-hmm. and then her friend who was kind of waiting in the wings below trying to run out of the building to seek help is stabbed with some of the falling debris and is also dead. It is really gory. Quite the opening. Yeah, and I think it's probably one of the most iconic images from that movie. Poor Pat hanging there by her cord, all bloody in her white nightgown. And then, of course, her friend, who is also victim to that kill. Wow. So the very next day, we get the image of a blind man arriving at the school and parking his guide dog outside like it's a bicycle. Yeah. (laughs) And his name is Daniel, but that is how Susie is able to enter the building because she's able to grab the door behind him as he's walking and enters a room with lots of blue going on, lots of velvet blue walls. Mm -hmm. And she meets Miss Tanner who is the head instructor and who is also able to introduce her to Madame Blanc, who is the deputy headmistress. 
And Tanner also introduces Susie to Pavlos, one of the school's servants. And there's some interesting dialogue there about how Pavlos is ugly. Yeah. Isn't that so strange? They're very open about it. He's just like, oh, he looks so unfortunate. Yes, it's so strange. And then it never really comes up again. No, we don't really ever see him again besides maybe toward the end. Yes. He almost reminds me of sort of like a brooding figure who follows around a mad scientist and does like the mad scientist's bidding. Yeah, and we're also introduced to this weird little kid, Albert, who is Ms. Tanner's nephew, who she Mm. is very close with, Mm -hmm. who he doesn't speak at all. He looks like an extra out of Children of the Fucking Corn. Yeah. uh You don't know what he's there for, but you get that Ms. Tanner is very territorial of him, and he just looks inherently creepy. But when she is walking in... Miss Tanner's giving her a tour while Madame Blanc are talking to a bunch of police officers from which they learn that Pat was murdered the night before, shortly after she was expelled for her bad behavior at the academy. And I don't know that we said this earlier, Susie was invited to come to this prestigious ballerina dance academy in Germany. But when she arrives, it's almost like, who are you? Yeah. Like, there's a lot of question. That's what was a lot of my question is like, why Susie and why is she here? Mm-hmm. I mean, like, we assume that she's like, obviously passionate about dance and whatnot, but Even a lot of her attitude throughout the movie, and I don't know if it's because they were trying to characterize her as American as possible Mm -hmm. and trying to show her as, like, a little disrespectful, but, like, she doesn't seem, like, that thrilled to be there. She just seems a little out of place. Well, she's definitely irked out. Yeah, I mean, I guess I would be, too, but just some of the other things that start to go on, it's like, is that why she ends up becoming, like, a little bit of a target, or is it more so, like, about what she knows? But either way, she's introduced to Olga, who is her new roommate, and this girl, Sarah, who is another American. So Susie kind of blends in with her a little bit more, and they get to talking. But it's clear that Olga and Sarah don't like each other. Yeah, there's some catty tension when Olga says to Susie and Sarah that usually snakes have names that start with S's, and then they hiss at each other. (laughs) Ooh, bitch! Snake. <laughs> oh, bitch, you just said that, bitch. But yeah, anyway, Olga has an opening in her apartment, so Susie is able to move in there since something about her room not being ready, etc. And her apartment is beautiful, and Susie actually seems pretty happy to be there. Beautiful is a word for it. Well, for a student... It looks like a fucking Lisa Frank wallpaper situation. <laughs> My eyes hurt looking at this, and it's the least colorful thing I've ever fucking seen. <laughs> I think it's supposed to be seen as beautiful. I don't know. Maybe I should go back and look at it and really take a nice look. My eyes. And maybe it's because (laughs) maybe it's because there's so much color in this movie that the all of the black and white is so jarring to me. But it almost was like you ever play with those coloring books when you were a kid where it was like raised felt were like the black lines of the design. That's exactly what that looked like, where it just looked like the walls were fuzzy and that you were going to have some lint on your marker afterwards. (laughs) And it looked like it just needed to start being colored in somewhere. But I just I don't know. Like I saw that and I'm just like between that and whatever the fuck Olga was wearing. I was just like, what the? That's interesting, because in the spirit of colors, if that is a place that is not anywhere near as colorful as the airport when Susie arrives, the dance school. Maybe it's supposed to indicate that it's a safe space. I'll also say, just as a disclaimer, I'm not trying to call all Italian art or architecture or whatever. Like The 70s were different. 
I think it's Everywhere. the combination of everything. I also realize I may be sounding a little ethnocentric at this point, but it's just like, Elise can attest looking around my apartment. I don't do patterns. I don't do colors. So there was just a lot. There was just a lot visually going on and I got really fatigued early on. Let me just say that. Honestly, reading the little bit about Dario Argento that I have, I think that maybe you had the intended reaction. Yeah. I was disoriented. So when Susie gets back to the school, Madame Blanc tells her that her room is ready. But she's like, oh, no, thanks. I love staying with Olga. I'm going to stay with Olga. It's going to be fun. And you can kind of see a flash of maybe not disappointment, but kind of that's not what you're supposed to say. Come across Madame Blanc's face. So that is when Susie goes with Miss Tanner and some of the other students to class. And she sees this woman, Albert's keeper, polishing a knife in the hallway and the woman sort of catches the light on the shiny blade and kind of like flashes it in Susie's face and Susie becomes all dizzy and weird. Yeah, she's really disoriented. She looks sick. And I don't know that if this is almost like a punishment from before because when she is talking about her room and wanting to stay with Olga, Miss Tanner compliments her and she's like, I admire your strong-willedness. And I'm like, ooh, sarcasm? Or like, ooh, Americanness. And that's where I was like, ugh. So it was this kind of like a way to like balance her out and put her back in her place because of what happens afterwards. I think you're right. Because Susie is in dance class. She's forced to dance. Though her way of dancing while ill is so melodramatic and interesting. She still looks very beautiful while she's moping around, but she eventually ends up passing out with a nosebleed on the floor. Yeah, so Daniel is playing the piano, and Daniel is the blind man from earlier, so he's the pianist. Mm -hmm. And it looks like her limbs are almost compelling Something's compelling her to move. Oh, like a ew, marionette. It does look like that. Because she tries to not dance and she's like, oh, come on. Like, you got this. You got this. But if you look, it looks like she is being like held up by her wrists and her knees almost. Like something is just kind of like throwing her in either direction. Mm. So I, that's where I was like wondering, oh, like, is this the powers that be? Is this hmm. their way of trying to, like, straighten her out? Where there's not only am I going to make you sick, I'm going to make you look like you suck at dancing in one of the most prestigious dancing academies in the world. But yeah, she ended up passing out and bleeding from the nose and mouth. When she wakes up, she is in one of the rooms in the dance academy with Madame Blanc, Miss Tanner, and a doctor with her who basically let her know that Olga has not really kicked her out, but the Dance Academy has taken liberties to go to Olga's, get Susie's things, and move her into this room. So she's no longer living with Olga now. She's in a dance room, a single room at the Academy. And the doctor prescribes her like a really shitty diet, including a glass of wine every night with dinner. Yeah. And the doctor implies that she is out of practice and that's why it's happened. And he was like, yeah, when you're out of practice, micro tears happen in your muscles and then you hemorrhage and that's why you bled. Like, it's like a weird. Yeah, that doesn't. A weird track. thing. I was wondering, too, like why Olga kicked Susie out. And we forgot to mention earlier that while they were in Olga's apartment, Susie had remembered that Pat's last words had to do with secret Iris. <gasps> yes. And that Susie was also flirting with this guy who works at the academy. And Olga was mean-spiritedly talking about, yeah, he does whatever Madame Blanc tells him to do because he's too poor to pay for classes. So he's pretty much like their servant, their lackey. Mm. So you're 
understanding that there are certain people that have to rely on the leadership of the academy more. And part of me wonders if Olga kicked Susie out because she was like too close to the Pat situation. And she's Mm. like, I don't want that smoke. I I just want to be as far away from like whatever's going on at the top of this situation as much as I can. But we don't we never really get clarification on that. So next door to Susie's new room is Sarah's room. And that was the Sarah we met earlier. So we kind of start to see a friendship develop between them, which is nice. It's nice until (laughs) Susie starts freshening up for dinner and she's brushing her hair and she finds a maggot in her hairbrush and then maggots in her hair. And all of a sudden it's raining maggots. Hallelujah. Yeah, no, she looks up at the ceiling and there's this really jarring shot that just zooms in really quickly to a ceiling full of magnets. You'll never look at popcorn ceiling the same way again. I didn't even think of that. Yeah, so she runs out into the hallway screaming and a bunch of girls are also running out into the hallway screaming. So the whole ceiling on the floor is infested with magnets. (laughs) People are being pulled into the ceiling. Oh my god, I totally just blew up. (laughs) Infested with electromagnetic energy. (laughs) Okay, infested with maggots, not magnets. (laughs) So, Miss Tanner goes up into the attic and she tells the boy that Susie has a crush on, don't let anybody come up here. And she's seeing maggots all over the floor And they see that there is a chest of something that is rotting, and that is where the maggots are coming from. Now, we don't really see the contents of the chest too clearly, but what it's told to the girls is that there was a food delivery that went missing, and it ended up in the attic, and that is what happened. The food spoiled, and that's where the maggots came from and just rained through the ceiling somehow. I'm not too convinced they were just food. Yeah, but everyone seems happy with the answer. Yeah, Yeah, and it never really comes up again. So they are all forced to sleep in one of the dance studios. So the school sets up kind of these like sheet barriers between the girls and the guys, you know, to keep it decent in 1977. And it's like sleepover time. There's all these nice bed set up and the girls are sleeping on one side and the lights go out to go to bed and the whole room turns red. Yeah. And this is where I noted that, again, no one's noticing this. Like if the room turned red in the middle of the night and there was like a maggot situation and like all of a sudden it's not dark, but it's red, I would be like, it's very scary. Yeah. But they're not reacting to it. But that distorted yelling music starts Mm -hmm. by goblins and Sarah is alarmed, and I was like, by snoring? Question mark. Yeah. <laughs> but she tells a story that she knows how the directress snores. And we didn't mention the directress. So we have Ms. Tanner, who is like the headmaster of the dancers. And then we have Madame Blanc, who's like the deputy headmaster, leader of She's the school. She's like the principal. And then there's the directress who's like the superintendent. Yeah, precisely that. But the directress wasn't able to meet Susie upon her arrival because she was away on business, quote unquote. And that didn't sound suspicious at the time, but Sarah is suspicious now because she claims that she had a room adjacent to the directress once and she knows how she snores and they can see that there is a body sleeping behind the curtain and the snores sound similar to the directress. So Sarah is alarmed and 
we're not quite sure why she's alarmed yet, but yeah. you can tell that she was Pat's friend and she's really the one who's taking charge to look into Pat's disappearance and perhaps doesn't believe what people are saying about her. The night passes, the next day comes without anything else strange happening. We're met with a familiar scene with Daniel, the piano player, arriving to work, ties his dog up outside for the pup to kind of hang out for the day. He goes inside and he starts playing the piano. And shortly after Daniel arrives, we see little Albert and his keeper arrive at the school. And we see the keeper, like, get that look on her face like she did with Susie when she flashed the knife glare in her direction. And next thing we know, the scene cuts out. We hear Albert scream. And then we see Miss Tanner walking angrily down the hallway towards the recital studio where Daniel is playing the piano. Yeah, and Miss Tanner promptly fires him. She's like, you know, you and your beast attacked my nephew. And he's trying to argue, like, my dog would never attack anybody. Your nephew must have done something to him in order mm-hmm. to gain that reaction. And she picks up his cane and throws it across the room. And it was just like, you're out of here. Like, you're done. And she, he's like, you bitch. <laughs> like, literally with that inflection. <laughs> and then he goes on a tirade and he says, I'm blind, but not deaf. And then <gasps> walks out of the room. So... We know that he knows something. Mm-hmm. There's nothing about him that ever strikes suspicious. So Sarah's in Susie's room that night, and she's feeling pretty sleepy from her dinner wine. Mm-hmm. And she's just falling asleep. And Sarah is suspicious as to why the teachers don't seem to leave at night, or she doesn't think the teachers leave at night. And Susie points out... Well, their footsteps go to the left and not to the right. And if they were to go to the right, that means they're leaving the building, but they go to the left, which means they're going deeper into the building. And Sarah's like, oh, my goodness, I never noticed that before. Mm -hmm. What are they doing? Why are they here? And I'm like, why is Sarah so invested in the whereabouts of these teachers? And (laughs) we understand that she's a friend of Pat, but we are now understanding that, like, she is team... These teachers are out to get us. She is of the faculty suspicion. And Susie falls asleep. So we have a shot where we're creeping out of the hallway and we're zooming in on a nearly full moon. So Daniel is at a bar. There's a bunch of dudes dancing on tables. In Lederhosen. Yeah, they're looking like they're having a great old time. Yeah, I want to be there. And Daniel leaves the bar and he is walking home. And there is like a very dreamlike score as Daniel is walking home with the dog. But the dog starts to get agitated and afraid of something like barking into the night. That's never a good sign. And there's all these sort of prolonged shots at the surrounding buildings in this courtyard that Daniel has found himself in the center of. And then there's this iconic like swooping track shot that looks like somebody or something has swooped down towards Daniel. And right at that moment, we see Daniel's German Shepherd jump up and bite Daniel in the neck and just keep biting him and biting him and obviously killing him. Again, it's to wonder what is compelling the animal to be doing that. And then it almost makes me think, was it like actually like a bear that killed Pat or something? Like, if animals can be possessed with the nature of the witches or, like, compelled to do certain things. Well, she, Pat got stabbed, though. I know, but I'm just trying to think, like, 
we don't see evidence of a hairy arm mm-hmm. like anywhere. And when I say a hairy arm, I don't mean like a man's arm. I mean like a furry arm. Like I mean, right. it looks animalistic. So that's where I'm like, okay, you've been able to compel the dog to do things. Well, I noticed that what I gasped about earlier was that it's a full moon and like werewolves. Yeah. So maybe, yeah, maybe there is some kind of weird energy there. And they also had like a weird close up on an eagle or some sort of bird, like right before it happens. Like, like you said, they were doing a bunch of close ups oh, in the, the stone, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. In yeah. like all the buildings surrounding the center square they're in. So I'm like, what significance does that have? Either way, Daniel's dead. Very sad. Next day, Susie gets some time with Madame Blanc and tells her about the secret iris that she overheard Mm -hmm. with Pat because she thinks that she is trying to help with Pat's disappearance. Mm -hmm. And Madame Blanc just says, oh, I'll call the police and tell them right away. She doesn't really seem too invested, but she entertains Susie's request. So there's this interesting scene in the pool. Sarah and Susie are swimming. We have an interesting aerial shot as they're just sort of breast stroking along in a really cool, rich looking pool. It looks kind of small. Looks kind of like too small to do any actual exercise in. The way I saw it, it was almost like a lazy river setup where there was like these different like bridges and like passageways that you could go because they enter the pool on like a very shallow space and then you see that they're being like looked down upon from like a balcony and it's just like this doesn't look like the pool you got into so either it's like a weird shot thing where you know time doesn't exist and nothing's linear and whatever or there's multiple sections to the pool but i'm more likely to believe that you know this is like one long bad dream Mm. so it probably doesn't have the biggest shape but while they're in the pool Sarah reveals that she was the one who sent Susie away the night upon her arrival because Pat was trying to tell her something but didn't get a chance to finish. Mm-hmm. And this is where I believe Susie tells Sarah about the secret iris as well. Yes. This is when we have the iconic line, like, what do you know about witches, right? Or is that later in her dorm? It's somewhere at this point because that's when we finally are starting to put together all of these moments of suspicion we see from Sarah into some sort of proposal that she thinks that there's some occult shit happening. Yeah. It was either here or before the night where she was talking about like the footsteps. I actually think it's this night but later in the room because Sarah tells Susie that she just was able to find some of Pat's notes, like her diary, I'm guessing, before she disappeared and that she was going to look for clues in there. And that scene ends with Sarah and Susie treading water in red bathing suits. But that's the thing. When they got in, they didn't look red. Mm. But in the light, they look red. So Mm -hmm. it's like, okay, they're kind of like marked right now. Like I I wrote down that they're in red suits submerged in blue. Later that night, Susie's falling asleep and Sarah comes storming in. It's like someone stole Pat's notes. And this is where she says, do you know anything about witches? But Susie can't stay awake. She is like falling asleep. She's dipping in and out. And that's where we're beginning to realize she might be being drugged. Yeah. As soon as Susie falls asleep, a big green light with the music starts. The green light overtakes the room. There's some suspicious music. And then I believe that's where Sarah sees the shadow at Susie's door. So she skirts out the other door. She's trying to get away back to her room before anybody catches her. 
she can't quite. She's seeing a figure sort of start to round the corner. She gets up into the attic through a crawl space entrance, which we previously saw when Miss Tanner went up to see the source of the maggots or whatever, which is so brave. <laughs> and then the assailant follows. Sarah is able to kind of shut herself in a little like closet within the attic. Because it's like, a, it's kind of a big attic, despite being something that you can only enter through a crawl space. It's like a full room up there. Yeah, it's got a lot of different compartments yeah. and mini rooms and stuff like that. And then the most annoying scene happens, <laughs> which is, so Sarah gets in that little room and she's able to shut the latch to like lock herself in. And the assailant has a knife that they slide through the crack of the door and they're trying to like push up to just literally flick up the Lever. But it is the longest scene of like just this knife like lightly tapping this lever while Sarah just kind of looks around and tries to crawl through this little window at the top of the far wall. And it's so annoying because, well, then I think later, because what happens is Sarah does eventually make it through that window, it, which is into another room, which is again really weird. I guess I never really thought about how this architecture makes no sense, but now I'm thinking about how this architecture makes no sense, which is like that dreamlike feel, I'm sure. And she goes, she sees a door, she tries to jump to get to the door and then lands in a pit full of wire. See, your annoyance and my annoyance were at two different things because your annoyance was at the knife jiggling. My annoyance was she gets down from this window, she is on a ledge, but she doesn't take notice <sighs> that she is in a room full of barbed wire. It looks like she cannonballs into this pit of barbed wire it's awful like it literally just looks like she just tried to take a step forward and then lands in a pit of barbed wire and then like flounders like a fucking fish for three minutes yeah but it's just like it just doesn't make any fucking sense i was thinking that maybe the person was taking so long to unlock the door because they knew that she would jump through the window and end in the pit of barbed wire and that's all well and good it's just the matter that she jumped before taking notice of the barbed wire. And then maybe, I mean, again, maybe that has to do with this dream-like component where, you know, you think that there's a path ahead of you, but like the path disappears and you're falling oh, and, and all of that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. But we see the barbed wire. I feel like if Argento wanted us to have her not see the barbed wire, he wouldn't have shown us. So I'm like, what the fuck? And I'm just like, stop moving, whatever. But she is caught up in this barbed wire and the assailant is able to come and slit her throat while she Ugh. is entangled. And another close-up shot of that fatal wound, just that same uncomfortable feeling we got with Pat's exposed heart being stabbed. It's like that same sort of close-up thing. Next morning, Susie is told that Sarah is gone. Ms. Tanner says that she left that morning. And then that boy crush corroborates. He's like, yeah, I helped her with her bags. So mm. this is where we're beginning to notice or we're getting confirmation that there's a network of folks in on it. And then enter another random fucking character. Who feels like everything he says is in an infomercial or something. Frank Mandel. He's a psychiatrist. So all of a sudden, it just so happens to be really convenient that Sarah had been seeing a psychiatrist and Susie goes to ask him about her and he just like says everything. Yeah. Isn't there like a code? I said, <laughs> breaking HIPAA left, right, and center. Like, hi, you don't know me, but I am, I am Sarah's roommate. Oh, yes. Let me sit down with you at lunch and tell you about how she has been having a nervous breakdown for months. He's wearing a great blazer, though. He looks great. It's just a matter that we had no clue that Sarah was seeking anybody, but all of a sudden, like, Sarah's gone. 
And then we just see Susie on the phone. It's just like, hi, can I speak to Frank Mandel? I'm like, who the fuck is Frank? Is that a dad? <laughs> and it's just like, no, it's just the most loose lip psychiatrist I've ever fucking seen <laughs> that also just happens to have a colleague who's super into the occult. I'm like, all right, now you decide to do your exposition dump when we have about 20 minutes left in the movie mm-hmm. and we don't know what the fuck is going on. It's, it was just like, huh? Yeah, it was pretty whack. So Frank, he's just talking. He's like, you want to know more? Here's my colleague, Professor Milas. You're going to want to hear what he has to say, whatever. And that's where Susie learns that the school that she's currently at was founded in the 1800s by Greek dancer Helena Marcos, who is allegedly a witch. She learns more when she converses further with Professor Milas, who is a professor of the occult. (laughs) And he reveals that a coven of witches perishes without their leader from whom they draw power. So he kind of reveals this essential mechanic behind a coven. And I also found it interesting as to how he defines a witch, because it made me think of the witch that we covered in Puritan Ladies. And he says, witches are negative, powerful, make change only to do harm and gain wealth from the suffering of others who have offended them. So when we were watching the witch, like Puritan Ladies witch, that witch only seemed to want to seek bodily youth and Mm -hmm. needed blood to kind of have her immortality fed but this characterizes a witch like a spiteful biatch where it's like you front me you're fucking done (laughs) you're hexed (laughs) the hex sisters that kind of explains the order of disappearances where mm. obviously Daniel affronted Ms. Tanner because of the biting incident. Susie has been offensive in terms of not being grateful, but also being friends with Sarah, who was highly suspicious of Pat. And we're learning that Pat was one of the first to uncover the secrets of who the headmistresses really were. So now we start the climax of the movie because Susie knows of the truth and it's more so how the rest of it's going to unravel. Susie's back at the school and she's completely by herself. She finds out that everybody has already left to attend the Beloshi Ballet. So she's by herself in this scary school. And she makes the decision that she's not going to drink her wine or eat her food that night because she kind of has realized that something weird is going on because she's so tired. And she dumps the wine down the sink and it leaves this red residue. It looks almost like a cup of paint rather than a cup of wine, which is an interesting choice. There's like a shot of her like running the wine down the drain. And at a certain point, a bat comes in and like terrorizes her. She like kills it. With a stool. Yeah, really gruesome. But it helps her recall a conversation with Sarah about footsteps. Because if we remember the first time she was having that conversation with Sarah, she was just so delirious. She never fully remembered it. So she follows the sound of the footsteps carefully. They like count the paces and they lead her to Madame Blanc's office. Yeah, and this is where I wrote, take your fucking heels off, Susie, because she's <laughs> click-clacking through these hallways, like, bah, 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 bah. <laughs> and this is where the lack of having another character in the scene with her made me start being frustrated because mm-hmm. she starts narrating her thoughts out loud. She's looking and she was just like, secret iris, what should that mean? 
I feel like movies don't do that anymore. No, like it's it, like where the fifty years were like theater and movies like still intertwined, where you're still having these like monologues or asides. Yeah. So like for example, she's stepping into the space where there's a lot of ancient murals on the wall and paintings of flowers on the wall, and her heels stop click clacking, and she's on carpet, and she's like, "Their footsteps must have stopped here." I'm like, "Show, don't tell." You're already wearing heels. All you would have done has to look down and like stamp your foot a couple times and then it's fine. But it's just just like, this is where their footsteps stopped. I mean, I know it was a product of the time too, but I'm just like, yeah. what? That is so funny. I did not even notice I, that. No, she starts narrating shit out loud at this <laughs> point. I'm like, Ooh, what are you doing? The iris was from like, she spun a little flower on the wall and like a door opened. Yeah, yeah. And that's where she is able to go down a secret hallway, a secret passageway, and we leave the velvet blue curtains behind and we enter a secret hallway that is trimmed with black and gold. Yeah, very bougie. So Susie basically enters this corridor, this black and gold corridor, and follows it through very slowly. And she sees the Academy's instructors, led by Madame Blanc. And she hears Madame Blanc basically talking shit on her, like, I hate that Susie. She's the worst. She, we gotta kill her. Kill her. <laughs> Susie needs to die. Yeah. Die, die. It is so, yeah, that's another moment that was kind of weird. I was like, all right. Okay, we get it. And then it becomes just super obvious because then she she like raises her hands above her head. And she's like, Helena, give me power. Like, yeah. And we're like, okay. And we get this like weird psychedelic sequence where you can tell there's like a power transference happening or some shit. Albert is there as well. He alerts Pavlos to Susie's presence. And then Susie hides in an alcove where she finds Sarah's body all disfigured and stuff with nails in her wrists. It seems like a very uh, sacrilegious ceremony of some sort. Like anytime you see those nails in the wrist, it just kind of brings like the image of crucifixion to mind. Yeah, but while she's in this alcove, she hears the snoring of the directress behind the curtain. So she is walking into the room and, oh no, I forgot that's where you leave the colorful peacock. <laughs> oh yeah she well she notices the directress and then she wants to leave because she's scared as fuck and she knocks over the colorful peacock yeah. there's just a fucking ceramic colorful peacock there and mm -hmm. i did not look into the lore of peacocks perhaps they have a great significance or maybe they're just really colorful and dario gento's like oh yeah what's the most colorful thing i could put in this fucking thing like a powerful peacock but the peacock ends up becoming really fucking important for not being mentioned the entire first 80 percent of the movie <laughs> because forced to sort of defend herself because the directress wakes up and starts talking to Susie and is like, I've been expecting you. So Susie arms herself with one of the quills of the now shattered peacock. She goes over to, I guess we can call her Helena. When she goes over to Helena, she's going to stab her and kill her because she knows that that's what she has to do to stop this whole coven. But then she draws back the curtain and Helena is gone. Yeah. But what we do find is Sarah's body is now possessed. Yeah. So Helena says something about like, I will come to you from the dead. And Susie turns around and Sarah's body comes through some coffin and like charges at her, which I thought was scary. No, I, that was like the one scare that because I hadn't seen the movie, I wasn't expecting. And her just kind of like flying toward the camera. I was like, oh, well done. Like, oh. I really liked that. Although Helena can't be found, we have some Scooby-Doo effect shit going on where all of a sudden, maybe it's the magnets in the ceiling, there, <laughs> there is just a shimmering outline of Helena. It's on, the lightning. Yeah, I don't know. Where There's, are the windows? I don't know. 
<laughs> but there's some shimmering outline of some invisible force just like on the bed, on the bed. And because of that shimmering outline, Susie's able to take a wild guess as to where Helena might be dwelling. And again, if I'm a witch and I am sitting there taunting somebody being like, you wanted to kill me, you're going to meet death. I would get the fuck up from where I was and maybe try to make her think I'm somewhere else in the room. No, just make yourself invisible and then just sit your ass down back on the bed that you were just in. Well, we see that when Susie stabs her and she loses her invisibility cloak and comes back into a human form that she is old as fuck and her blood looks like gravy. (laughs) So maybe she was just too tired. She's sleeping all the time. Yeah, exactly. But then she's dispelling her power to fucking Ms. Tanner or Madame Blanc. I guess. And that brings into question kind of how does she recharge? Because usually, like in Hocus Pocus, we know that the Sanderson sisters rely on youth to keep them young. And even in The Witch, we know that the witch of the colonial forest in where was that? Where were they? Like Massachusetts or something? Yeah whatever, was eating children so she could stay young. But I don't know where this directress was maintaining her power. Does she just have a long lifespan because she's a witch? I mean, is it that that's why they attract young, beautiful girls from all over the world to this ballerina academy? But I would have liked to see some ceremony. Like, they're just killing these girls left, right, and center. Like, do something where you're stealing their ability because Madame Blanc was, like, this famous ballerina. And maybe they do this in the new one. I don't know. But like talk about some level of like power transference or some idea of stealing this talent and this youth from these girls so that you can like maintain your front or maintain your youth or maintain your power. But instead, it just seems like a bunch of crusty old bitches who can't dance anymore Mm -hmm. killing off these teenagers because they're talented. I don't know. Like that's where I'm just like, where is the incentive here? The witches are not really painted in a strong or intelligent light. And I think that lack of learning about their process kind of contributes to that. And something about this movie, too, that I read and after I read it helped me recognize. It's just like the movie is known for the things you talked about up front. It's known for its stylistic and its music and its visual It's known for those things. It's not known for its plot and it's not known for its incredible acting. So, you know, we're putting a lens on it that's almost 50 years after the fact. Mm -hmm. So, of course, we're looking at it in terms of like, where the fuck does this linear thing make sense? But when you put the lens on it that it was made stylistically the way that it was for a reason... And because this is almost meant to appear as though it's a bad dream, because when the movie opens, it's Susie's dream come true. Like, she is this dancer who's reached this level of prestige that she's able to pursue the path to her career and the path to the success. But the second that she gets there, it's almost like it's all going wrong and these things keep happening. And why is this happening? And why does nothing make sense? It's all like a bad dream. It's all like mm-hmm. a dream deferred. Ah, But yeah, she kills Helena and shit starts blowing up. Yeah, so the building collapses and she, like, so slowly damsel in distresses it out of there, like, stopping to kind of, (laughs) at every chance she can get. But she does make it out, which is good. And eventually when she does, she looks back at the building and she laughs to herself and then walks out of the frame. And there is sort of that cool ending there where we do see her kind of feel really fucking good about herself for putting a stop to this coven. And it's almost like a backwards from how the movie started because she's running through the hallways and they're red. 
And then she runs past these yellow windows and then she sees blue and that's where the front door is. And she runs like out into the night. And that's the opposite Uh, of what happens in the car where it starts off really red. And then there's a lot of like yellow and blue like on her face when she's driving in the rain to the academy. So it's almost like she's completing the process. And I was also thinking like that's how daylight works Mm. where it's like you know the red could represent the dream for lack of a better word and then like you're waking up and then it's daylight again Mm -hmm. so it's almost like she's gone through her entire cycle of the dream and it's over now that's so interesting you paid so much attention to the colors i was just like look it's red (laughs) (laughs) there wasn't much else to fucking pay attention to Uh, well, it sort of makes me think of now the the whole idea of a building collapsing kind of reminds me of the fall of the House of Usher by Edgar Allan Poe. That story about the family line finally dies off. And then when the twins die, their house collapses around them. But then, then there's all of that idea, like the narrator leaves and looks back and you're left wondering, was that real or was it a dream? So just like in this movie, was it real or was it a dream? Yeah, sorry for talking about Edgar Allan Poe. That's it. That's no, you connection. said Fall of the House of Usher. I'm like, oh, oh. is that like Flavor of Love? <gasps> no. <laughs> Usher, Usher. <laughs> oh, yeah. It all comes back to Flavor of Love. It always does. Final thoughts, final feelings about the movie now that we've talked about it. Obviously, it's a classic for a reason. Obviously, it's iconic in terms of score, of visuals. And I mean, I think that's something that kind of goes understated even in the conversations that we have, is just every movie we watch is dark as shit. It's muted Mm. as shit because Mm -hmm. that's usually what they're trying to convey or the director's trying to convey is like this dark, this dread, this glooming lack of life. And that is almost pretty normal. Like even any movie you watch, like any color just seems so dim and whatnot. So when you're seeing something like this, which is almost technicolor and is so bright and inviting, it almost does make your head do some mental gymnastics and it is a little disorienting because what's occurring on screen versus the signals that you're getting are so working against each other. So I get, especially at the time, why that worked so well. I think you and I being the English majors that we were are like looking into the dialogue and the Mm. symbolism behind everything. And we're like, wait, what the fuck? Like, where's the lore? Where's the backstory? Like, where's all that kind of stuff? But again, I love context. Exactly. But I believe you gave a great amount of context in the beginning in terms of just talking about how Argento really is iconic in terms of his filmmaking and his style. And he still continues to be today. I dug it and I'm glad that I watched it. I think it's an Italian movie. It's a different style and that shows. And because we're having a reaction to it and a different reaction to it shows why it's cemented in its iconicness because it was able to almost transcend that level of geographic region or national origin to have something that everybody was super interested in. Yeah, well said. I agree. I liked it. I do, like I said in the beginning, want to watch the 2018 one just to compare. And also, I really like the story. I guess it's interesting to have a movie about witches that you actually get to see witches characterized. I feel like normally they're kind of like elusive figures in the night that dip in and out just to terrorize people. So I thought it was interesting to see some of them characterized, whether we knew they were witches from the start or not, still like seeing them get screen time. Yeah, they all had faces. Exactly. Especially coming off of like the Blair Witch Project. Yes. Where we don't see her at all. And I think that's to our benefit. But yeah, you're right. I believe next week we're doing part two Ah. of our history episode. Okay. 
yeah, next episode, we're going to be doing the back half of the decade. So we're going to be looking at 1980 through the 2010s and seeing what those trends are and how that's reflected in the times. I'm looking forward to that because I don't think I've really had the same amount of time thinking about what our cultural fears would be like in our lifetime versus making conjecture based off of what I remember from history class or other films. So I think that'll be kind of an illuminating episode. Yeah, because at least for, yeah, the 90s through the present, we were at least somewhat cognizant of what was going on at the time because we were living it. Well, if you want to follow us on Instagram, please do so at The Horrors Podcast. Also, please interact with the podcast, whether it's, I guess, liking it, sharing it, subscribing to it, whatever you can do to give us some attention. That's really what we rely on considering our numbers and what we're going to do and so on and so forth. You can also email us at the horrors podcast at gmails dot gmails you gmails said, you said that last time too i did i said gmails yeah. <laughs> what the fuck is wrong with me so at gmail.com we love to hear from you and yeah and until next time we're the horrors bye bye, bye.